Albert Einstein, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, John F. Kennedy, Tony Robbins, Michael Phelps, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of industries. What else do they have in common? Well, they all have ADHD, but you don't hear much about that, do you? You know what you hear even less about? The successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm an attorney, not a doctor, a lifelong student, not a coach. I'm also the creator of Cortography, a patent-pending system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your superpowers, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest superpowers. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode 70 of ADHD for Smartass Women. In this episode, I am going to introduce you to Kelsey Elizabeth, who grew up in New Hampshire. Kelsey went to a small liberal arts college in Massachusetts. She has a degree in clinical and research psychology, a BS. She also has a second bachelor's in music with a concentration in piano and was just three credits short of a third degree in social welfare because, well, Kelsey couldn't make up her mind. Now, that sounds pretty ADHD to me. Kelsey was diagnosed with ADHD last year at the age of 25, and I asked her to join me here today because it is so rare that I meet a young woman with such a sense of who she is. She has so much insight and so much wisdom, and I just know that she is going to help so many of our listeners by telling her story. Welcome, Kelsey. Did I get all that right? You did. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I am so pleased that you're here with us today. I'm excited. Yeah. So can you tell me what were the circumstances around your diagnosis? You were diagnosed, it sounds like about a year ago, last year? Last September. So it hasn't been a year. And what made you seek out a ADHD diagnosis or did it just sort of fall into your lap? It, it fell into my lap. Uh, so I've had quite a collection of life circumstances that brought me to a psychiatrist for other things. And then uh, took a little while, but ADHD was suggested. And then I came to the psychiatrist and yeah, it was dropped in my lap. It was a surprise. So the psychiatrist that you went to was that a psychiatrist who specialized in ADHD? And was she the one who suggested that, have you thought about this? Or how did you get there? So I was going to a therapist at the time. And I had been you know, working with a therapist on uh, some pretty serious anxiety related to some work situations I'd been in. And so we were working on that for a while. And then she suggested ADHD out of the blue. Uh, and I did some research for myself. The psychiatrist, yes, she did specialize very specifically in the three things, anxiety, depression, and ADHD, had it herself, and she didn't see it. So I brought that to, to her. Okay. So I'm confused. So who was it that brought it up? The therapist I was working with, actually. Okay. 
So you had been working with a therapist for quite a while. You were working on anxiety and depression. And was this a therapist who specialized in ADHD, depression, and um, anxiety? No. So that was the psychiatrist. The therapist had kind of a broad background in a lot of different things. Okay. Now I'm getting it. Now I'm understanding. Okay. So what were the symptoms? Like what was going on with you? Uh, So I had, right after college, I'd moved and had a lot of uh, life circumstances change. Uh, You know, I love the job I was in, but then I ran into pretty severely abusive boss that kind of singled me out and just some financial difficulties, trying to do a lot of jobs and stay afloat teaching music. So then I found myself um, back home, a bunch of health problems and had a second situation kind of re-triggering me with an abusive boss. And so I was seeking help for that because I couldn't barely function at work. It was awful. And so there was that kind of some underlying anxiety that had been there for a while. And so I was seeking help for that and it, it just kind of arrived. And I, I don't know if I answered your question because I forgot. There you go. Just, I'm just doing that so that everybody listening will feel better. I'm just putting myself <laughs> on display. So that is really interesting. So you studied psychology, you have a degree in psychology, and still, well, I'm wondering, so when you're studying psychology, do you go into ADHD? So that's one of my soapbox points that really gets me fired up. In I've researched this not just for the psychology degree, but also when you're studying for psychiatry, when you're going for a master's, anything like that that's related, they still give it, you know, sometimes even just one lecture. Like, look it up if you don't believe me. That's the standard. And so I found that kind of infuriating. Um, so I, I'm having a hard time remembering exactly back then, but I don't think I know much if anything about the inattentive type. And yeah, I had a degree in psychology and that's just because of the structure of how the education set up, how it's viewed. Yeah. And so you think that they were talking about that stereotypical hyperactive 12-year-old boy, that those were the symptoms. You don't think that they were talking about inattentive. Yeah, there's that. There's the whole, well, I think of it as a childhood diagnosis and then just not giving it any time because I've, I've spoken to some mental health professionals very well-intentioned. I respect them a lot, but we have bigger fish to fry when in fact, like the fish is going to get a lot bigger because you didn't get the little one first, you know, it exacerbates everything. So yeah, it's in the education system, unfortunately. And so do you think that you had comorbid anxiety and depression, or do you think it was the um, ADHD that was causing it, untreated ADHD? I think the depression was mostly the untreated ADHD, kind of the restlessness and just kind of feeling like I was on a hamster wheel. It's just not going anywhere. And, you know, just the restlessness leads you to like, well, what's next? What am I supposed to do? Does everybody feel this way? And then, um, yeah, I had comorbid anxiety, pretty bad social anxiety, which kind of compounded itself as time went along. And so, but I did find that a lot of that went away and most of it actually when I was diagnosed. So yeah, I would say I did have all three, but they definitely interacted a lot. The anxiety, basically if the ADHD had been diagnosed earlier, I don't think, well, the comorbidities would be there, you know? 
Uh-huh. But you think everything would have been a lot less. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So once you knew it was ADHD and you had the benefit of hindsight, what are some of the symptoms that you always wondered about, you know, starting from childhood that you now recognize as clearly ADHD? The first one that came up for me was the procrastination. Uh, I don't know how I did it. And when I tell people about this, they're like, I don't know how you did well in school because I, I did run on adrenaline the entire time. It's that rare that I could name um, a few instances where I legitimately started really early. So there was that. And I didn't know why I couldn't kick it. But I just, I pulled so many all-nighters and I did okay. But I can't do that anymore. <laughs> um, so there's that. Uh, and then also the daydreaming, of course, in childhood and in college, um, thinking, okay, I'm going to listen today. Like, I'm really going to do that. I, I'm not going to daydream. And I think I'd get about five minutes in and <laughs> and then it was pretty much done for. So I just learned stuff outside the classroom <laughs> most of the time. And so there's a bit more. I'll try to go a little faster through these. Um, no, please don't. I love this. And I think this is what helps people because a lot of these symptoms, you know, certainly before your diagnosis and even at the beginning of your diagnosis, it's like a puzzle, right? You'll, right? you'll go through life and something will happen and then you'll connect the two and you'll go, oh my gosh, that had to do with my ADHD. And that really helps us to put that puzzle together. So take your time. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's, when you get into that, you also get into the piece of what's me and what's ADHD. And then you, you can't really, it's, it's kind of useless to separate a lot of it sometimes. True. So, yeah. I noticed the daydreaming thing, of course, but then I was really shocked that I hadn't been able to find so far anything in my report cards that said anything like that. Like really, how did it slip by? But I did find something from the younger grades and that says, uh, you know, we've got three quarters. It says, I, you know, Kelsey's a joy to have in class. Kelsey's a great reader, but she continues to work on directions within the classrooms. Most of her mistakes are careless ones. And then we've got, I continue to work on verbal and visual cues to help Kelsey listen and follow through on directions. So I was just looking at that and I said, you know, they basically reprinted the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, in my report card. But the knowledge was so deficient, especially then, that they didn't see it at mm -hmm. all. So it was really entertaining for me to find that report card. But tangent done. I'll go back to your question. And surprisingly comforting, right, Kelsey? I mean, when you see things like that, you realize, oh, that's why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It confirms it all. Yeah, it was kind of, even though I already knew it at this point, it's a little bit affirming and validating to see it written out as well. So I think I had mentioned to you before, just a pervasive um, feeling of not being present. And I don't think I could have articulated it that way before. As far as presence, it was just, yes, I knew I was different. Um, I didn't latch onto the same thing in conversation that my peers did. And I, I definitely did miss bits of the conversation. So even when I was present, I wasn't picking up the same things. So I just really didn't gel with my peers. It was more with adults. So that piece and that kind of symptom kind of um, fed the social anxiety. 
Was that because you were going in and out? Like if, if you were really interested in a conversation, would you totally latch on and be all there, but you weren't really that interested in a lot of the conversations that were going on. And so you'd kind of go in and out and then you'd miss things. I think that was a big part of it. I know since, um, adults would take me seriously and, you know, said I was mature and stuff. I think it was more just being shy, but yeah, that was part of it. I would go in and out, but then I also think even when it wasn't just straight up daydreaming, I wasn't absorbing the verbal stuff as clearly. So I wasn't responding as quickly and different things came up for me in relationship to what people were saying. So it would sound like a rabbit trail and like, why, how'd you come up with that? (laughs) Um, (laughs) That creative brain. uh, Well, (laughs) that is one word for it. You're right. Okay. So I think also the emotional dysregulation piece, which is not discussed a lot. I don't think it was always a bad thing, but I had this feeling that, you know, as a kid and more so obviously as a teenager, as things kind of get a little more difficult that people didn't understand me. And a lot of teenagers say that, right? So it's like, you'll be fine. It's, you know, everybody feels this way, but people actually didn't. So there was that piece. So Kelsey, are you saying that you felt like people didn't understand you? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and when I had said that I was listened to, but it felt kind of brushed off because that's the way a lot of teenagers feel. And I'm sure that was part of it, but no more of it was actually this. And I was right. They actually didn't (laughs) Mm -hmm. understand me. So do you feel like you just felt things more intensely when it was important to you? Yeah, absolutely. So I would ask even the people close to me, okay, so they'd tell me they're interested in something or I'd be telling them, why are you not more excited about this? Like, you're just over it already? Isn't this exciting? Like, doesn't this just make your day? I don't know. It just, I'm interested in it, but I'm not, I'm not reacting the way you are. So there's that, which even in the midst of all the other comorbidities that, you know, I was still able to enjoy a little bit of what I, what I like to do and what I was interested in. But then the other side of it, of course, is when you're socially isolated and then the depression piece comes in that you feel it a lot more intensely. And then the whole RSD thing that we talk about, you know, comes into play. So, Mm -hmm. okay. So when, when you're talking about social anxiety, Mm -hmm. when did you start seeing that come in? And now with hindsight, when you're looking at ADHD and you're looking at social anxiety, like how were the two linked? So when I said about not being present, that's, I think what first led to the whole classic, oh, so-and-so wasn't invited to the the birthday party and, you know, just a little bit kind of ostracized on the playground. So you're, you're talking to me about how, when, where this started, I would say I can remember first grade. So that kind of led into me having a harder time speaking and, you know, doing oral presentations, just talking to new people. I was a very, and still am a very empathetic person and wanted to make sure everyone was kind of taken care of. But I just kind of went inward and it got worse and worse. So I would have things that I wanted to do and speak about, but 
couldn't do it. I was just too afraid. And then that, you know, feeds itself and you get a little more isolated. And you remember this as far back as first grade? Yeah, that's that's definitely where it started. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if it started in first grade, what was all this like in your teen years? How did you do then? That is where the depression really started. And I didn't, just because it had been that way for so long, you know, that's the time where you really want to have fun with your friends and do some new things. And at that point, I didn't really see a way out of that at any point. I still did what I was supposed to do in school and, you know, had a couple adults that would listen to me. They didn't know how to help me or anything like that, but I knew that they loved me. So I think that that was one of the things that, and they understood me. I have lots of people that love me, but that kind of kept me hanging on there. But I really turned inward a lot more there and couldn't figure it out. Didn't see how that was ever going to change. Just the way I am type thing. Okay. You just thought that that's just the way I am and that's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I always cared a lot about people. I wanted to know about them. I wanted to talk to people so bad and connect with a lot of people. And so that was always inside, but I couldn't make it fit. And so I just thought I'm always going to have that desire, but there's something about my personality that it's just not going to happen. You know? Yeah. It's just going to stay that way. So I'm wondering, Kelsey, did it get better in college? Because I don't know, maybe it's easier to find your people there, you know, because you're kind of all studying the same thing. You're interested in the same thing or, or did it get worse? It got a little bit better, a little bit. There was still that awkwardness piece that even when I found something to dig into, I wasn't putting myself completely out there. You know, I did have some friends in college, but I connected a lot with honestly, since it was a small college with the professors, because they were into that niche. And they were, you know, really excited about how someone would come to the office hours and want to know more and just be very passionate about it. So I did have some friendships, but I don't feel like they went very deep. And by the end of it, I felt like, oh, I'm starting to, you know, I've met a few people, but now it's over. So I really dug in and maybe this was an avoidance thing. I really dug into all the activities I could do because uh, some of the things I hadn't done when I was younger. So just all the clubs, all the music ensembles, lots of courses, jobs. And so that kind of filled my time in college. But yeah, it didn't improve too much. Still a mystery. So Kelsey, do you think your experiences are in large part why you choose to major in what you chose to major in psychology, but also what it is that you do today? I think it's a big part of what makes me more empathetic. I do know, and when I wrote a bio about myself, that I never stopped asking why. So that was just an intrinsic interest. I do think it makes it a much richer experience and you know allows me to pour into what I do with clients. So I work with clients with severe and persistent mental illness, which just means that they have to have a certain diagnosis to be able to qualify for these services in a community mental health center. So I do meet some people with ADHD, depression and anxiety, of course, 
And then there's a whole other layer, of course, of other more severe diagnoses. Obviously, I decided to major in this before I knew anything about that. But I did at that time have the empathy from the depression and anxiety that gave me another piece to latch on to. And so do you think you majored in this because of, you know, you're constantly asking this why question and you were trying to ultimately figure yourself out? I think all psychology majors try to do that. That's that's pretty hard to separate. (laughs) So, yeah, a little bit. I don't think I ever expected to figure myself out. So it was more, okay, this will be interesting. I might figure other people out because I'm pretty good at that, but I'm not going to figure myself out. So it's fine. It's just, it's an interesting subject and people are interesting. That's so interesting. I mean, it sounds like you figured a lot of yourself out. Yeah, I have. Yeah, but at that time. Okay, at, at that time. So I'm, I'm curious. So the people you work with today, do you find that they're kind of more like you? They're more like your people? Yeah, they're definitely willing to, I like to analyze everything and kind of entertain multiple perspectives. They're definitely willing to have more of those conversations because just the nature of the work, you have to really suspend your judgment and look for the deeper meaning and people's motivations and their triggers and everything. So I do feel like, yes, there are a lot more my people before I got the diagnosis and I had just started working in mental health officially. Even though I was having a hard time, I did feel more connected with those people. Absolutely. Okay. So you feel like you're you're in the right place now, the right environment. Yeah. I enjoy what I do. I don't think because of how I am that I'm going to settle on one thing. I mentioned how I teach music on the side because that's a very important part of my life as well. But yes, I feel like it's a good place for me and I enjoy my work, my day job. I should say, lots of interests. (laughs) Wonderful. So what has changed since you were diagnosed? Okay, this is a big one. All right. (laughs) We love big ones. Yeah. So I'll first say, if I haven't already made it clear enough how the level of social anxiety, complete 180, because saying, you know, I wasn't really able to speak up much or enjoy social situations or have, you know, enough connection to feel that I enjoyed that. I thought that I was an introvert because of that. But then I found out after I was diagnosed that that's, that's not the case. Um, <laughs> no, it is not. Uh, if, if any of these Zoom meetings during coronavirus, all of the ones I've been a part of are any indication, absolutely not. So let me ask you a follow-up to that before you go on, because I'm going to forget. Do you feel like, I've already forgotten, wait a second, what was I just going to ask you? Do you feel like you get your energy from other people? Yeah. And there's the piece where as a clinician, the topics are so heavy that it's it's a little different that way. You have to kind of take a break from that. So it can be a little draining just because of the content. But as far in general, yes, I do. I love it. I, I like this new side. And so I almost wonder if the whole social anxiety piece and connection and depression is because if you're an extrovert and you get your energy from other people, but you can't get out there to get that energy, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
So the awareness was a big piece, but then she started me on medication right away. And that's Mm -hmm. what changed it pretty quickly. I don't know if I would call this a mistake, but I made the mistake. See, I just called it a mistake for lack of a better (laughs) word of starting the medication in the middle of a work day. It was actually an employee appreciation day. And I just really, I just really had to try it. I knew it wasn't a smart decision, but it just, the first time in my system, very jittery, a feeling I couldn't describe, but I was very clear at the same time. And I was like, whoa, I've just woken up. And uh, so it was a, a gathering of coworkers, lots and lots of people. And so I just went around and talked to a whole bunch of people. And I said, you know, and I'm working with mental health people. They must think I'm manic. <laughs> and um, so that was the first day. And then they had in that same event, they had a speaker, kind of a motivational speaker to encourage us in the work that we do. And she was asking for our input. And I said, oh, wait, I kind of want to, <laughs> I kind of want to stand up and say a bunch of things, but that's never, I've never been that good with that before. So should I do that? And so I just like went and talked a whole bunch after having this in my system and everybody was responding to it. And it was so weird. So that was immediately, that was my first day on medication. And there's more there, but that story, when I tell it to people, it's, it's wow. pretty ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so you just did a complete 180. I mean, there was no little voice in your head telling you, oh, you shouldn't do this. You just kind of went with what you wanted to do. Uh, there was a little bit of a voice, but I was <laughs> able to make it shut up a little bit yeah. and just give it a go. So there's a little bit of that that comes back, but I'm able to shut it down most times. So because anxiety was such a big piece and it exacerbates everything, uh, some of the things that appear like their ADHD would be somewhat imperceptible without the anxiety. So I realized that that fed into the lack of presence and the lack of being able to make my thoughts clear more than I thought. So that's been just the awareness and the medication. But even when I'm not on the medication, the awareness makes it a lot easier, makes it clear. And do you find that being on the medication helps you even when you're off the medication because of the fact that while you're on the medication, you're experiencing and learning like different things about yourself? And so you see things differently then, even when you're off it? Like, I I guess it's awareness, right? It is awareness. And then just knowing that, well, there's a reason for it, the awareness. But also, you know, if there's a day where I really do struggle with those symptoms, You know, and we're not even talking about executive function so much. That's a thing for me as well. But as far as the being clear and present, just knowing that I kind of have that out a little bit takes most of it away when I'm not on it, if that makes any sense. Repeat that again. So just the awareness. So just, I guess, kind of knowing the effect that the medication had and realizing off of it how much of that was also due to anxiety. Mm -hmm. Just kind of knowing that that's there, the medication kind of makes it easier being off of it. You know, it's that and the awareness. It's like, I'm okay. And just like the anxiety feeds itself, the more good situations and new patterns do as well. Got it. 
Got it. So what else has changed? Well, (laughs) (laughs) so the whole fatigue piece that went with all of that, and even when I liked my work, it got repetitious, right? So once the job's not new anymore, there's still places for me to learn. And I'm very blessed to be able to learn as a regular part of my job. So I started looking forward to work, not just select parts of it. And I realized how other people look at their jobs, right? Even if they don't like it all the time, they'll just kind of go with the flow. And I thought that everybody, unless they were you know, getting paid to sing or something that they really loved, if, if that was their interest, that they just, mm-hmm. they liked it enough. And I was kind of a whiner. So, you know, people would say to me, well, you got to do something that makes money. Of course you do. And I would find more ways to work different jobs and everything. And yeah, of course, like, got to be responsible there. But it just made me so tired and so depressed that, you know, I don't have much control over this. And I just feel like it's never going to end. And I'm forced into this. So I thought that everybody hated their jobs, even if they liked the subject matter or certain parts of it, because there's so many parts that are repetitious and feels boring, that it's exhausting and makes you depressed. And so I just thought there was this unspoken that everybody just dealt with it better. But it turns out that it was a character flaw in you, right? Yeah. Yeah. It turns out that they were okay with being bored a little bit. They were okay with some repetition. They liked the structure for, you know, many reasons. They were more comfortable with that on all levels. And that kind of mentality as well reminds me of people that, you know, just go with the flow. They're content to not really make a wave or anything. And just how can you live your life this way? (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So that was an important revelation. But also once I was on the medication, able to, I'm not great at paperwork still, but it doesn't ruin the whole job for me, the parts that I like. No, that's that's really interesting. Um, So is there anything else that's changed or have we hit them all? Well, so... I think just in general, I felt that I was always pursuing a little bit my interests, music, and just loving to learn, but I couldn't really take that to the next step because of the social piece. I feel like now I'm kind of at the point, I have a lot of the awareness where I can really dig in a little bit more. I can go out and, you know, if I want to do some more performing musically, I'm not going to be paralyzed by the anxiety of it. Even if it's there, you know, I, I work with it a lot easier and it doesn't like ruin the performance. And so that general sense of, okay, I can go lead a group. I can perform if I want to. I don't have to spend so much time focusing on the anxiety. I can focus on my energy on what I want to do. And I noticed that you know, there's one more example in my work. We were doing a training. Everybody was kind of nervous about a little bit of the unpredictability of it, the role-playing that we were going to have to do. And I don't know if nervous is the right word, but not everyone would jump up and lead the meeting. And so I just said, oh, I'll do whatever anybody else doesn't want to do. And it was so much fun. Can you hear the complete 180? Is that clear? (laughs) 
No. <laughs> no. But I like the story. I like the okay. story. If you take the whole, I'm scared of talking to almost everyone. I don't want to meet new people. I don't want to speak because it's too nerve wracking. I would like to, but I can't. And then you take me going, I'll do whatever anyone else doesn't want to do. And just leading the impromptu meeting and having fun with it. Does that, does that make more sense when I put those two together? So what you're saying is that you didn't let yourself overthink it. You just jumped into action and said, I'm going to try and just see what happens. Yeah. Well, and I looked forward to it mostly too. Ah, you would have never done that before. No, no, I would have tried, but I didn't get very far. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds, Kelsey, like you really figured out the confidence piece. Yeah. That no matter what gets thrown in your way, you're going to figure it out. Right. That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay. So what are the ADHD traits? I'm just going to segue a little bit here that you feel are responsible for your success. So I think it's really important when making this distinction, because we've been talking about awareness that, you know, the ADHD diagnosis is so unique because if you look up what the experts say, it's the most treatable mental condition there is. So untreated, it can be pretty impactful, obviously, but once treated, it's unique in that you can turn a lot of those things around and for good. So mm-hmm. that leads me to, I really appreciate the enthusiasm that I have. If that sounds like a weird way to say it, but I do, uh, I wouldn't want to live more vanilla existence, um, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> kind of bland, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy, okay, I, I learned this new thing in music. Let me explore it. And just having that persistence and I think a little more grit there because you're used to pressing on. Fighting. Yes. Right. That's a better way to, yes. We're used to just kind of fighting our way through things. Yes, absolutely. I think the curiosity piece really helps me to succeed a lot. It's responsible for that grit. It's all tied in together, the enthusiasm and the curiosity. And even with the social anxiety, I, to a certain extent, didn't care what people thought. Like there was no real concern for peer pressure with me because if I don't want to do that, no, you're stupid. I'm not doing that. You're ridiculous. (laughs) That's very ADHD. Yeah. So... I've been thinking the way oppositional defiant disorder is looked at, obviously, if you look at the symptoms of that, it's not ideal for a child, but the whole defiant part, I think is very misunderstood. And I think having a little bit of oppositional defiant qualities is not a bad thing as far as, you know, sometimes it's not being contrary. Sometimes it's exploring things. Sometimes it's standing up for something. Sometimes it's not being content with the status quo. And so some people view that as defiance, but I think it's important to have that, that different outlook. I I completely agree. It's kind of what you were saying before about, you know, people that are just vanilla. Yeah, you're going to go along and get along, not going to learn anything more, not going to care. One of the things that I heard you say, and I can't remember where, it wasn't in this podcast, is you said that you think people should care more. And I just love that. You know, I think a lot of times we have the sense of 
were too much. Right. And I really see that as, no, we just care more than you do. Yeah. And maybe I'm not too much. Maybe this, this sounds horrible, but maybe in this situation, the way you responded wasn't enough. And I think if some of that enthusiasm isn't there, well, it doesn't make people feel heard or understood. You really have to probe if you're in my situation for what's going on. And people can tell when you don't care. We certainly can tell when you don't care, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Kelsey, what do you think the key is to living successfully with ADHD? Hmm. Well, I've got a few things for you on that one. So the first part, I'm a broken record. It's the best word for it, though. The first part is awareness and not just awareness. You need to connect with some people that think like you do, even if it's only online, because I think people need a lot of validation before they're going to internalize that they're okay, the differences are okay, that once you work on the difficulties, the spirit you put into everything is an asset. And there are people that are a lot of people that are going to appreciate that. So searching for those people, but then also I haven't had to search very much. There's a few coworkers of mine that are ADHD and a couple of them, I just figured it out and that's how we bonded. And so (laughs) it's, it's really great to be able to have that instant connection but also know that there's going to be people that are close to you that are going to understand. Uh, And so just give them that space to get to that point. So there's that just really kind of taking your support system and letting them in on this big part of you. Cause you can't, if you keep it a secret, you know, it's, it's like being ashamed of yourself. So there's that. I think also being easier on ourselves as far as needing to process emotions a little bit more. I used to wonder why I would need to talk things out so much. And then other people would say, why are you worrying about it? Why don't you just drop it? Just go do it. And I'm like, I am going to do it. I I just need to (laughs) get this out. Uh, Shout out to, I don't know if you know who Jeff Copper is. I've been listening to a lot of his stuff. I do. And Mm -hmm. he uh, talks about working memory And all these things that we kind of unconsciously do to take the demands off of that. So one of them was processing out loud. And and that's okay. That's okay. Not everybody is going to understand that. But some of that is, it's okay. It's It's how we process a lot of the times. So there's that. I think this is pretty standard at this point. People know it, but we always need to hear it again. That some structure is good. And it's going to take us longer to get there with the structure. So we really have to pace ourselves. Uh, If it's just cleaning up a couple things as we go and remembering to do that in a certain order, you know, something like that, that we could implement each day. So there's, there's a lot of the concrete, like more pragmatic things. And then there's the, the mental reframing there. I go with, I'm surprised I haven't used too many clinical terms today. That was probably for the best just explaining that a little bit more clearly. And when you're saying mental reframing, what are you talking about? Paying attention to what you're thinking? So if you're in therapy, one of the most common modalities is cognitive behavior therapy, which is how your behavior and your thoughts and your, they all feed into each other uh, and, and your emotions 
like that, just kind of picture a circle, those things all feeding and you kind of don't know where one ends and the other begins. So by reframing, I mean, being aware of the thought that takes some of the power away of it and reframing it into something more positive. It doesn't have to be Pollyanna. It can be, okay, I I felt better today. There's potential for that to keep getting better. And so you get more used to believing that. So reframing is anything like that. It can be neutral, you know, use your creativity to do that. We really can change our thought patterns. We definitely can. Yeah. So I think it's also important, like any human, we're going to struggle and we're not going to, we're not going to get it all the time. Having that connection to some kind of higher purpose, like, you know, a, a bigger social context or a spirituality, and that's, that's kind of the meaning of it. That's one of the tenets of things that we would encourage clients to explore is something bigger than themselves uh, so that we're, we are hard on ourselves. Right. And so sometimes taking the pressure off of ourselves involves a little more looking outside of ourselves and just be easy on yourself and just plug in with those people that love you and give it some time as well. Perfect. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. So what is, I won't give you a number one workaround, but how about a few things that work for you in trying to make your ADHD easier? Well, I feel, I kind of feel bad because medication doesn't work for everybody. That was such a jumping off point for mm-hmm. me for reducing, <laughs> yeah. for reducing the stress there. I think that has got me going and now I'm trying to be more disciplined with the structure. And part of that involves some really clear accountability and scheduling like I've been doing with some of your group members, starting to schedule more regular practice sessions and times to work on paperwork takes the thought out of it. So that's kind of the boring part. But as far as you know, I think you do a good job with this. And a lot of us in the smart ass group do as well, laughing at ourselves. I, at one point had, I don't know if this is good or not, because it makes me focus on it, but it's, I did laugh. I had a list that I made of all the ridiculous things I did and my friends and I laughed about it. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. You literally made a list of all the ridiculous things you've done in your life. No, 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 no. Uh, so it lasted like a week, but uh-huh. there was just a lot of craziness. And so okay. rather than <laughs> erate myself, I just decided to make an account so that I and the people I selected could laugh at it. And it worked very well. So you took something that created a lot of negative emotion and you turned it around to make it create positive emotion because you guys could all come together and commune or connect yeah. over these silly things that happened. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And other people, the friends that I've talked about that are ADHD, they put theirs on there as well. So we kind of had a competition, like who's crazier today? I won more times than I'd like to admit, but it was funny. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. My last one, have fun with it. Okay. So if you're in a job, like most jobs are, that has some repetition that drives you crazy, find your own ways to make it interesting. For instance, 
I have a lot of clinical notes to do, lots of important information, and I do a good job at those. But I also have other things I want to remember, different stories and different quotes that clients have said. I don't put any identifying information in there, just a disclaimer, but I have a quote book, okay? And that reminds me of those really fun moments and those moments where we really connected and those moments where I just really appreciate the connections that their brain is making. It's very interesting to explore. So I have a quote book. That's so interesting. So you are basically, what you're saying is you're learning from your clients. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. For various reasons, we were really careful with our disclosure just to keep the boundaries there and to make sure it's focused on the client. But I do have quite a few clients on my caseload who actually are ADHD and they wonder why I understand them so well. And, (laughs) you know, maybe at some point it might be prudent to actually give them that knowledge, but I am learning a lot. And part of treating ADHD is a lot of people are tempted to treat the symptoms the same because they look like anxiety, PTSD, depression. So really it just involves a lot of creativity. And if you're not you don't know that that's what it is and you go, I'm just treating the symptoms. You're going to treat it. You might be able to get a lot of the anxiety to go away, but it's still going to be there. And that's going to leave people more upset than before. So in my experience, I'm just really advocating for that in my field to be considered as more important. There's too many squirrel jokes. I joke a lot. You've heard me talk about this, but if it's only about the squirrel joke, then people are, oh, that's, that's not a big deal. You're just, you know, you're just distractible. It's, it's fine. So we have to laugh at ourselves, but we also need to balance the whole laughing and there's great qualities with, okay, needs to be treated first. And that's the beauty of it. You can't say that about another diagnosis is treatment is so effective, but also, and it looks so good on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely hear you. Okay. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. I know that there are going to be so many listeners listening to what you have to say and getting so many nuggets out of it. And I really appreciate that you took the time to spend it with us here today. This is my first podcast. So you you initiated it. Yeah, I really appreciated it. You did a great job. If people want to reach out. I would really enjoy talking about it more. So I would encourage people to use my contact info. Wonderful. So what we'll do is we're going to post your email in the show notes, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, Kelsey. Thank you so much. Thanks. So that's what I have for you for this week. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. If you like this episode with Kelsey, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too can discover their amazing strengths. And your reviews, they really help in that regard. One more thing, if you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio message or reach out to me at tracy at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. 
I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. If you liked what you heard, we sure would appreciate a review. And not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, well, that's also the name of our free Facebook group. Go look it up. We're a totally smart-ass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. We'd love to have you join us. You can also find all my details over at tracyoutsuka.com. Don't forget, I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.